happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 292 for May the 3rd, 2023. My name is Wes Fryer, wearing my Ted Lasso Believe shirt. Actually, it's our school shirt, but Jason, you know, pointed out this is Ted Lasso, uh, which you can't tell if you're listening to us. But if you're watching the video, you can. I'm coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, where, again, it is not snowing, but I just love the virtual, you know, fireplace and snow. Uh, I think we had, oh, shoot, I don't know. It was it was a lovely day. It is definitely spring here. Um, but I see that you have the mountains in the background, Jason. And I noticed the time, the time zone difference because you got the sun streaming in there. So joining me as always from the beautiful Missoula, Montana, Dr. Jason Neifer, EdTech guru of the North, partly AI generated tonight, I see. Yes, yeah, I, I'm just going to give into it and see if I can uh, um, evolve to be a part part being part AI. Yeah, good evening, Dr. Fryer. My name is indeed Jason Neifer. I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School with offices on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Western Montana. And um, so great to spend the evening with you tonight. Um, and I don't know if the chit chat is our agenda. So tell us what this podcast is all about, sir. Well, the rumor is we're going to talk about some ed tech news. So we have curated a list of links and of late Jason has been great, like moving up the, the links from past week. So we probably have about 20 links under the category of AI. We're going to talk about the educational technology and technology news as it may apply to teachers, students, parents, and schools. In addition to AI, um, which if you look at that, we're going to spend four hours tonight talking about AI. We're not. Uh, we're going to talk about Google, or we could talk about Google, Microsoft, eBooks, security and privacy, social media, the tech correction, Copyright intellectual property, like war, culture war, chip war, Microsoft, and we will end with our geeks of the week. So what is your preference tonight, Dr. Neifer? Shall we jump straight into the rabbit hole, which is AI, or do you want to talk about a few other things before we do that? Well, I mean, I would say that that uh, there is an awful lot going on in AI world, um, and it, it's probably – and, and I will fully acknowledge that I am part of the problem of AI discussion sucking the oxygen out of everything else that's going on in tech world. But I do think it's important to, to articulate that this is a pretty significant shift, and um, if you don't think this is a big deal or it's being overhyped, I think you're underestimating what's coming in your direction. But I'd say let's maybe do a couple of uh, other random topics, and then we can jump in. And before we do, I want to thank you for your encouragement to be <laughs> utilizing my ChatGPT subscription, which I have been paying for, uh, but I had not been using a lot. And I've been using it almost every day now. And, you know, to your point, if you don't think this is a big deal, I don't think you've been playing with ChatGPT. Because if you play with ChatGPT or like you just seriously, you know, use it to do your work and, and to, to make your... Uh, workflow more efficient, I think you'll be blown away. It is really astounding. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're here to stay updated on the tech news, but we're also here to, you know, think about the ways that we want to utilize um, tech tools. And it's always interesting to, you know, kind of compare notes as far as what we're doing. I did also use Canva to create a video for my class the other day, and it was absolutely lovely to drop in the clips, drop in the audio, and here we go. So it, uh, 
yeah, the influence of the, but it didn't involve spending more money. So sometimes Dr. Neifer, you know, leads to some budgetary expenditures in the Friar household, but that was <laughs> my, not my the case. sincere apologies. That's okay. All right. What would you like to start before we go in the AI, uh, into AI world? Well, let's, uh, this is something we've actually talk, talked about quite a lot. A uh, couple of uh, uh, quick hits on kind of digital reading. Uh, first and foremost, uh, an article from Good E-Reader on April 29th, Gen Z prefers print books, not e-books. And um, the author there is uh, uh, cites a McKinsey report that says that book sales um, have reached a, a record of over 843 million units as of 2021. And despite that, millennials are reporting that uh, they prefer printed books over um, uh, 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 their kind of ebook cousins. And they it cites a couple of different pieces here. Uh, one of them is the tangibility of print books, uh, tradition nostalgia is part of it, and also um, uh, uh, comfort because most readers find ebooks inconvenient to carry and read. And I think this is super interesting for a variety of reasons, in part because this is not the first time this topic has come up. And I can think back to, um, well, when, 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 first of all, obviously when the Kindle was released, which I think was 2007, 2008, if I remember correctly. And then um, also there was a huge, huge um, uh, kind of uh, uh, a boom period of ebook readers. And I'm trying to remember when the um, when the uh, um, the Las Vegas conference in January that has all the new tech stuff. Uh, yes. Um... <laughs> Why are we not that's remembering right. this? It's that's right of our dancing age. That's all right. Make uh, well, there was one year where there was a just a massive explosion in ebooks or ebook readers, and CES were CES, <laughs> the Consumer Electronics Show, and CES. Um, one year had just this this shocking number of new ebook of physical pl platforms, so the actual hardware. It was the year of the ebook and how the ebook was going to change everything. And don't get me wrong, obviously, ebooks have changed a lot of things. And, and for no other reason, we've talked about this one a couple of times in the podcast too. The opportunity for people to sell to a wide audience via ebooks uh, is is pretty extraordinary, and you can publish an ebook overnight. Like uh, overnight, you can publish one with a click of a button. And in fact, there were times in in my past um, uh, when I've taught sections of the ed tech class at the University of Montana where I had my students. That was one of our projects was to publish an ebook together as a class, and um, it was a, a, an interesting experiment and. And uh, it was, uh, I think, very uh, poignant in highlighting, you know, how the publishing industry has changed. But um, there is uh, some evidence, right, that that there still remain strong preferences. And I think about it in context of um, the last time I talked to uh, kind of an adult group about this was some time ago. It was uh, I was hosting a table at a fundraiser for the Helena Education Foundation, which is the education foundation um, in the city that I spent most of my time teaching. And um, this was 2012, 2013-ish. And the my table was talking about the kind of the romance of paper and that they felt that the physical newspaper the physical book had a certain romance to it that was hard to give up in comparison to the ebook platform so i guess i'd start here dr fryer um where where are you at in this uh, what what's your your physical book diet versus your ebook diet 
Well, audiobooks are definitely figuring high <coughs> in my my book consumption diet. Um, I and I have been working to <laughs> to force myself to read and consume books, you know, versus just you know Flipboard and Twitter and articles and things like that. Uh, because of my uh, <laughs> my age uh, and my my eyesight, I definitely prefer being able to enlarge the text on on eBooks. So I, I'd say I'm solidly in the eBook and audiobook camp. But I was just trying to look up on my blog. Maybe Peggy can help us. And hello, Peggy. Uh, remember this. There was a fantastic tool that came out in probably the late 90s, might have been early 2000s, but it allowed for teachers and students to, to, to annotate, much like the Kindle, you know, let, lets you highlight and see popular highlights. It let the teacher do annotations and let you see not only what the teacher was doing, but classmates. And so we could be inside the text and we are annotating and seeing each other's comments. And I have not ever seen that same kind of functionality. It was purchased by Pearson or, you know, some large um, educational uh, publisher. And then it was, and, and, it, and it basically went away. So I don't know if you remember what that was or, or if Peggy does, but man, uh, I would love as a teacher to be able to have that kind of functionality, to be able yeah. to be in the text together with my students, see their questions, you know, see annotations, see highlights and all of that. And, and I know that DRM and, and the ways in which copyright and things like that, you know, play into it are an issue, but you know, it just seems like, you know, Amazon's kind of taken over the world of eBooks and, and I'm kind of happy with that from the standpoint of having made an investment in not only, you know, iPads and of course there's the Kindle app, but also actual, you know, Kindles. Um, and I've experimented with that, with the idea that, Hey, I'm going to be less distracted when I think Bob Sprankle gave me that idea years, years ago that if you're using this, you know, single use device, maybe you'll be a little bit more focused and, and less, less distractible. But Peggy's asking if it was for Adobe Books. I don't think so. It was not an Adobe product. It was another tool. There was a librarian in Enid, Oklahoma, whose son was, I think, working on that project. And then it got bought out. I'll just have to go, you know, do a little bit more research. But that kind of function. I don't know. Are, what, is, what does this look like at the Digital Academy, Jason? Are you all strongly in the ebook court? Are you at, you know, feed in both places? What, or can you generalize? Well, I mean, it depends if we're providing the, the, the resource or not, right? So, for example, in all of our advanced placement classes, uh, many of them uh, have a requirement or a strong suggestion to utilize a, um, uh, a textbook along with the class itself. And in those particular cases, there's just no economically or time-sensitive way for us to distribute uh, uh, paper textbooks in that way. So we, we provide uh, ebook codes to do that. But at the same time, we also try to adopt college textbooks that a used copy could be easily picked up and utilized in its place because I get the nature of it. And, and I have to be you know really clear about something. I love ebooks. I think ebooks are great. I have a huge Kindle library. I also have um, access to um, uh, other platforms that provide me EPUBs and stuff. But you guys, know, I've been mocked a couple of times on this podcast. You know, up here uh, just over my shoulder, taking my virtual background off, is my you know, current stack of, of, of books that I want to read. And there's another stack of books I want to read. And there's another stack of books I want to read. And there are, for me, certain applications that I much prefer um on uh, on on a, a paper book than i do uh, an ebook and um a couple of good examples of this uh i 
uh, my strategy for travel books, for example, and 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 I, I'm doing this right now. Uh, my wife and I have planned a, a summer trip. We're going to go to Germany and Sweden in June. Um, we're going to hang out uh, with kind of I, I guess we can call them family now. Um, we have family in Sweden that we're going to hang around for the Midsummer Festival, which is the summer solstice festival in in northern Europe, and. Um, uh, we're going to spend a week in Berlin, uh, which uh, my my mom is German. Um, uh, my grandparents uh, came to the United States uh, just after the war in, in 1951 when my mom was an infant. And so um, uh, there was a uh, certainly a um, um, or there's certainly a, a need for us to, to you know, to, to research some stuff from when we're in Berlin. My family's in southern Germany. Northern Germany is a different place. So what we did is we purchased the Kindle version of the uh, book, but we also bought a four-year-old used copy of the travel book for Berlin, uh, same, same book but different edition, so that we could literally pull it apart into pieces and carry some of them in, in our, our you know, uh, backpacks and, and travel bags. Uh, that's an example. Um, when I read an educational book, if I'm not going to read it cover to cover, if I'm just going to read, you know, one third, one half, three fourths of it or use as reference material, I also prefer a print book over that. Um, and when I'm reading trashy sci-fi novels, which I do occasionally, um, I also prefer that in print. But nothing beats, and I carry a Kindle with me in my my larger day pack, um, you know, episodic reading or reading on the bus or flying on an airplane. It's pretty hard to beat the Kindle. And you know, there's been a resurgence in independent booksellers in the last couple of years. And some of that certainly is a pushback against Amazon, but also some of that is a pushback, I think, against the culture of, um, of ebooks that some people do vastly prefer uh, the print edition of a book. Okay. All right. Well, I didn't know whether to put this one under AI or social media. So I did it under social media. Um, this is from The Verge on May the 1st. NYPD's answer to to TikTok car theft challenges are 500 free air tags. Um, we reported a couple weeks ago that the New York Police Department is now led by someone who is just a real IT geek and he's brought robots, including the Boston Dynamics Robo Dog back, and then this other robot that doesn't have limbs but is a surveillance robot, but is evidently not going to use, you know, facial recognition, which sounds you know, made me a little bit difficult to believe. Um, there have been incredible spikes in in the theft of cars, both Kias and Hyundais, because on TikTok, perhaps other places too, people have posted these techniques where you can use a USB drive. I guess it has some code in it. I haven't watched it. I don't know how it works. But basically, you you take, you know, a USB drive and you're, uh, they break a back window. They put it in. And they're able to steal the car. So in order to track those, um, the Newark Police Department is clear to say this is not their direct tracking. But if a you know person, a constituent, has had a vehicle stolen, um, they're able to get that person's, um, I guess, either that person's iPhone or maybe they can also share the location data from their phone. But they're able to then use the AirTag to really precisely track where that vehicle is. Um, they're also in, in Charlotte. Uh, we had, we're, we do a thing at the end of the year, uh, we call it capstone, but our students work with uh, local nonprofits and government agencies that are, that are, you know, in the Charlotte area to help address, you know, challenges and things that they have. And when the police department came and spoke, they are giving away all of these 
you know, steering wheel locks again, to try to prevent theft, especially from those particular vehicles, but also other ones too. So interesting. I don't currently have an air tag in the car. Of course, we also have used cars that are probably not on top of anybody's list to try and steal. Um, but I thought this was, was interesting. And, um, you know, Apple has been addressing some of the air tag, you know, stalking issues so that when you have an iPhone, I think maybe you can have an Android app that does this too. You know, if an air tag that is not yours is traveling with you, it alerts you to that fact. Um, but any thoughts about this and any updates in air tag usage in your life, Dr. Knife? Well, I mean, they're critical for me. And um, I, I probably have, I don't know, a dozen or so of them now. Um, my wife is using them too. And, and she's a much less techie than I am, which is probably a shock to, to people that know me. But the, the bottom line is that for me, I, it's, it's really two things. It's leaving things behind that reminds me of things. And, you know, I do carry, you know, a fair bit of stuff with me that's, that's critical for my health. For example, um, I, I, uh, take a couple of varieties of insulin because I am diabetic. And so, and that's something that if I leave behind at a restaurant can sometimes be, uh, very difficult for me. And in fact, there was one time, um, in, 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 in my entire history of, of taking, um, uh, uh, insulin that I actually left it behind in another town when I was traveling and I had to retrace my steps. It took me hours. And if my phone just notified me that that, that particular item was away from me, I would have been able to easily track it again. And I think they're also absolutely valuable for traveling uh, for me throwing one not just in my luggage although i do have an air tag in my travel bag um i also have it in my backpack and in my my day bag and and have various pieces there and i just think that's really critical when i just don't want to have to find stuff right um and um, you know, I do think there's private privacy concerns. Um, it's interesting. I didn't tag this article, but um, I did read a brief part of an article the other day that uh, Google and Apple are actually going to pair up together um, to um, uh, to allow Android phones to do similar types of tracking as Apple phones will do, but an AirTag is following you around. I suspect that it might be a mutual agreement because I also read recently that Google is rebranding their version of the AirTag as the Nest Tracker or Nest Tag, I think is what it's being called. Nest is the brand name they purchased a couple of years back and it's become part of the, the broader um, uh, Google ecosystem. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just... I, it, I know that that there are issues and concerns, but I think it just makes sense, right? And I do think that in this era of of you know heavily connected devices, being able to find you know objects uh, in your life that are of both value and important to you is a is is a pretty a pretty good thing. Um, but I also agree that we need to continue thinking about the context of privacy and security around these particular devices. We had a recent key loss situation in our house that wish we had, you know, had a, an air tag on those keys. And so now we do, and we have them on our dogs. Um, I have a nest question though. Do you have a smart thermostat and is, is Google from your reading of the, of the tea leaves and the articles investing in nest? And I would like to have a smart thermostat. We, we had one that was provided by our, electrical company in Oklahoma and they had these smart hours. And so it would, you know, reduce the um, temperatures and things like that in the summertime when there were peak hours and the highest charge and all that kind of stuff. Are, are you doing smart thermostat? And do you have a sense if Google's nest is, would be a good investment at this point, or is there another Google compatible 
smart thermostat that would be better. So I don't have a direct recommendation here. And part of the reason why, and let me assure you, this frustrates me. I've yet to live in a home that supports a smart thermostat. And um, actually, that's not entirely true. A net connected thermostat, because net connected thermostats require more power than um, than even the traditional variety of, of, of smart thermostats. So in the last three homes I've lived in, uh, we've had a smart thermostat, but it's a programmable one. Um, that's battery powered and doesn't have the extra pieces. And mm-hmm. I know, I know four or five people. This is the nerdier side of my 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 friend group and my peer group that that all are big fans of it. Um, I would just like to be able to on a really cold morning, you know, pump up the heat a couple minutes early before I stick my tippy toe out of bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a Montanan that happens to have um, our 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 primary bedroom is is actually a basement room, so um, it's wonderful in the summer uh, and and actually not too terrible in the winter because of the insulation of the ground but yeah i've heard great things about nests um i um, also know that there are lots of subtle things in 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 most of the 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 good smart thermostat platforms like for example uh it will continue to run your fan after your air conditioning turns off because it tries to blow the extra cool out of the pipes right so you get the maximum juice out of it and you know what i like about the notion of a net connected thermostat is exactly what you spoke of this notion that you can hook up with other data sources there's good ways uh to both uh conserve energy in that way and and still get you know great comfort out of what that's doing for you in Oklahoma, it was called Smart Hours, and it was OG&E, which is the big, you know, electrical company there. Um, I think we saved a lot of money because by by signing up for Smart Hours, you allowed the company to have direct control over your thermostat, and you could override it. But again, uh, and we had lots and lots of hot summers um, where the where the the cost of electricity per kilowatt hour just really shot through the roof. Um, and that was that was actually good from a grid standpoint to allow the, the the electrical companies to have some control over that because they're trying to you know they're trying to manage the grid and, and manage demand and all that kind of thing. So I think from a from a grid and a, and a community standpoint, being able to have those kinds of uh, thermostats is is probably even better. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, that's, I'm, I'm glad to know that about compatibility. I, we just actually had our air conditioner uh, fixed because it wasn't blowing cold air and Hey, lo and behold, do you know how much Freon costs by the way? What? $300 a pound. It was four, it was $40 a pound. This guy said when he started working for this company and they don't make Freon anymore. And some companies will just tell you, Oh, you need a new unit. That'll be $7,000. Um, so anyway, we were able to get Freon and we were able to, you know, get, get this heater, uh, you know, deactivated, but I asked him, they use Honeywell. And so anyway, if anybody listening to the show has uh, some insight <coughs> and opinions about smart thermostats, um, you know, we're not just talking about educational technology. We talk about smart speakers and some, uh, you know, home and consumer tech as well. I would be interested in that because that is not at the top of our spending priority list for, the next couple months, but it, it, it is something on my list. And I think that, that there's a good cost savings that can be realized as well as, like you said, the convenience of being able to have, you know, air or heat as it, as it is needed, you know, turn on or turn off. So Peggy's putting Venstar in the, um, oh, and so, yeah, she's saying that she controls it with an app, huh? That's interesting. You must have a smart thermostat though, Peggy, to, to allow that. So of some, of some kind. So Venstar.com. I haven't heard of that before. All right. Sorry. I got us off track. 
That's okay. Uh, let's do some Google news. Um, this first one is really exciting, and I'm I'm I want to mention it because we didn't get to it last week. But Google Authenticator is now offering um, uh, its two-factor authentication with a sync, and and I want to tell you kind of a little story about why this means so much to me. Um, uh, so I am a very uh, uh, ardent fan of of, of two-factor authentication, and I also know that in general, when you can use an app like Authy or Google Authenticator, that's more secure than using a phone number for, for several reasons. The first one is that um, you, you don't always have access to your telephone, right? Or I'm sorry, you don't have access to a telephone connection. So getting a text message uh, is, isn't convenient, but also text messages are relatively insecure in comparison to these apps. And a couple years back, um, we started setting up a, a multi-factor, two-factor authentication um, uh, uh, in, in several of our properties at work. And as it turns out, many of them use Google Authenticator, which was great. Until I figured out, and this is when I was switching phones a little more regularly when I was an Android user, is that you couldn't back up and restore um, your uh, 2FA code on Google Authenticator uh, because it just wasn't a feature. And I just didn't know how to deal with that because I didn't know how to reset up my 2FA then. Right? And it's crazy like, that that wasn't available, right? Yes. I mean, that's like a very important feature. Yes, yeah. And it seemed it seemed nuts to me, actually, that that was the uh, uh, completely <laughs> bananas, that that, uh, that that was the way that worked. So I ended up moving all those things to Authy, which is now my preferred uh, 2FA um, piece. But um, Authy's great and, and works as a, an alternative there. But what I would also say that um, uh, is also uh, uh, a part of this is that um, um, the app itself is getting a refresh and a new icon, and um, it's also uh, uh, kind of improving the way it's um, it's, it's showing you the codes. And so, it, it, not that you need the excuse, but if you if you um, uh, don't uh, already uh, have an app, Google is now a much better option than it was before because it syncs your codes across your devices. Awesome. I've muted myself because was, I was coughing. Um, that's great. Hey, uh, Peggy, and back to, we'll fl fl flip back, mentioned this Vinstar, and this is sweet. This is a, a smart thermostat that I had not heard of before, controls AC and heat, and I don't know if it connects with Google, uh, you have to tell us, Peggy. I don't know if you're if you're a Google smart home or Apple smart home or but but with, through the app anyway that you can you can have that control. So it is kind of nice sometimes when you have un, you know unified unified dashboards and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that looks like a great option. But compatibility does appear to be an issue. So I have a very old HVAC system, so I don't know. We'll just have to yeah. have to see. But hopefully, there's a a solution that will be smart compatible okay a couple other quick google news uh pieces uh this is one from earlier in april but i just thought i would mention it uh ctl which is a, a prominent maker of chrome devices uh, has announced its next generation chromebox cbt x3 which you can get up to a, a an i7 13th generation intel core processor on it um, we have a couple of these devices at work and i must say if you are a uh, Chrome OS master, which I'd say I, I, I qualify um, in that realm. 
and you want the desktop experience, it's pretty hard to beat one of these CTL Chromeboxes. Um, you're going to pay a premium price for it if you get the the more extensive uh, 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 processors like the i3, i5, i7 processors, but you can configure them up to 32, I think even 64 gigabytes of RAM and more storage if you want to. But I have to say, despite perceptions otherwise, once you get kind of immersed in the Chrome OS architecture, it's very easy to be a power user there. And for almost three years, I was using a Chromebox at work as my primary machine. I had it plugged into a couple of ginormous monitors, which is really important for me for productivity. And as it turns out, it was a very uh, a very successful strategy for me to engage in, in that. And so if you haven't had the experience, um, although I will tell you that the cheaper way to do that um, might be just to buy or utilize if you have a, a dated, um, uh, a castaway Windows box in your school or in your home, um, chances are you could probably also configure a pretty fast Chromebox too in that way. But if you prefer to stick with the hardware, you absolutely need Android apps. That's certainly an option. I got a couple comments on Chromebox, but I'm going to go to the chat. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth Springer. Um, she writes that she, she got trapped in a loop back to the 2FA uh, Google Authenticator situation when she lost her Android phone and couldn't get in to find my phone without the 2FA that yeah. texted her phone that was lost. So, yeah, I put the link to Authy, and I don't know where I had discovered that um, a while back, but uh, that is um, my primary tool for being able to authenticate to a whole host of different, you know, sites and it is um, login so you can access it. It, it has a, an Apple watch app, which I use all the time. Um, but I think, um, you know, one password and password managers also have that function and I've experimented a little bit with that. And so if you're invested in a password manager and you're already paying for it and you've already got that layer of security, you know, 1Password, for instance, um, you know, has a very, very long and complex master password. They've got a way to use a QR code for it, but it's not just the username and the password in order to, to gain access to your, um, to your passwords. They have the emergency kit that you print. Anyway, love, love all that. Um, that's something to probably look at. But if you don't have a solution, I think that Authy is good, but I'm glad Google is uh, doing the sync. To the Chromebox, when I was tech director at my previous uh, private school, we used Chromeboxes quite a bit. Now there was also, and you can help me with the name, Jason. It was basically, it was a Chrome OS on on a long, like oh, a, like a yeah, yeah, a uh, little what was that a little stick computer you plug in with a US, or I'm what, sorry, with the HDMI and back. What was that one called? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was a Chrome Stick. Or okay, no, it was a Chrome Bit. Chrome Bit. All right, That's those were awesome. Yeah, we discontinued those, and then we went with Chromebox. But um, in our library, for instance, we had been running full blown Windows, but it was literally to just run the card catalog and do a little bit of internet research, but it wasn't like heavy lifting as far as software. And that was a absolutely wonderful thing to replace those, you know, cumbersome and old windows boxes with these really svelte small Chrome boxes, which were fast, which, you know, gave us access to the card catalog through Chrome, which would update automatically. I mean, just wonderful to manage, but on the signage side, one of the things you can do with Chrome of any flavor, uh, but certainly with Chrome box and with those Chrome bits while they were, the Chrome bits were cool. We would, we use them on 
TVs that we had mounted in different places around our high school. And then we were able to go into what's called kiosk mode and we were able to run slideshows. And that is a fantastic uh, digital signage solution. And so what we would do is we had a single slideshow that would just play. And then we taught the assistants for high school, middle school and um, and our elementary, you know, how to basically just change out slides with copy paste. And, And so it just always, you know, would run that slideshow and school menus and announcements and all that kind of stuff. And it was all running on Chrome OS. Now, uh, I don't, I need to check on the status of this, but our computer science department chair, along with the, the tech director who took my uh, place, have collaborated on an app for Apple TV, which does that same thing. And it allows, you know, anybody to use a simple Google slideshow and then be able to open up this app and boom. Then if you're using Apple TV, you've got the opportunity to, you know, have this uh, digital signage solution, which is driven by Google Slides. So I just, I don't know that I ever wrote a full-blown blog post about that, but we had we had iterated and tried different things. You can spend a lot of money on digital signage. Um, we just found that that slideshow option was fantastic, and the Chromebox was inexpensive. It was reliable. Um, we had some timers, you know, that would come on, and, and that way the TVs wouldn't run all night. Come on in the morning as kids came in, and boom, there's your slideshow. And assistants would set that up usually right before they would leave at the end of the day. So the next day, the signage was ready to go. So love Chromeboxes, love kiosk mode. And uh, if you've got that kind of a situation where you basically need the Chrome browser um, and you want something that's fast, a Chromebox is a great way to go. Yep, I couldn't agree more. And um, and 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 I would also say too that that. Um, I don't be afraid to experiment with Chrome OS Flex. It's just such a great operating system. And I've taken what is essentially cast away uh, laptops and desktops and turned them into something that, that it's not just feels faster, but it's objectively faster um, by, by benchmark measurement than, you know, a brand new Chromebook you, uh, uh, Chromebook you can buy from Target. So, you know, don't, don't be afraid to do so. Um, and then um, just a, a couple other quick hits here. Um, this one's just a laugh more than anything else, but Google uh, is issuing Chromebooks to employees as part of a cost-cutting measure, which I thought was kind of ironic. I do know that um, I believe that both Macs and uh, Chromebooks were typically issued uh, to, to users there, but they have a... Um, uh, a virtual workstation setup uh, that's available in Linux or Windows called CloudTop as their de- de- default desktop offering um, so that you're doing very little computing uh, on, on your computer instead, just kind of, uh, you know, uh, porting out to something else. Um, but I did find that ironic for those of you that have been experiencing that before. That's a Google thing, too. And then one other, oh, please, sir. I'll just interject. My wife loved her Chromebook. And so for a while, when she was teaching um, at this, at a school for homeless kids, they, they had iPads, but um, she had a Windows machine in her, in her room, but we just bought her a Chromebook. That was a more affordable device for us to pick up on her own, but she just absolutely loved it. Um, and when she moved to a Mac, some of it, it was a bit of an adjustment, but yeah. even, even though we might like, Oh, you know, oh, it's just a Chromebook. I mean, a fast Chromebook is an amazing device. And yeah. no, the trackpad, I mean, I'm sure they're better, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't the MacBook Air, but they've gotten really, really good. And and it's I don't I don't think it's anything to turn your nose up about. So that's pretty interesting. But hey, they're eating their own dog food there, right? So that's also that kind of makes sense for Google. Yep, yeah, totally. 
And then one other quick one, and I just find this ironic, and I don't know, you may know where this is going, but Google is shutting down Currents, which is their discussion platform um, that uh, replaced Google Plus when they shut that down for consumers. And the reason why I find this interesting is because that's where I think both Wes and I are members of the Chrome, uh, I'm sorry, of the Google administrator group on Google Currents. I was, I was, not now. Okay, I, I still am, and it's actually a pretty a pretty lively community, and I don't know where that's going. And I was going to go look to see for this article, but, you know, again, Google, maybe this is part of, you know, why things are, 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 are why they're a successful company, but they are completely unafraid to get rid of platforms that aren't performing the way they want to, even if it provides inconvenience for the users that are bought all in. Huh. Wikipedia is saying that the Google that Google Currents is a news app, an app developed by Google that provides subscribers with electronic access to full-length magazine articles. Are there two different versions of Currents? Because there I don't might know. be, because I'm just looking now, because the article's definitely talking about um um Google um, Plus. Yeah. Huh. I have not experienced that. I remember it as something that had to do with news, but yeah, <clears throat> Currents was what they called the replacement for Google Plus, the discussion boards, right? Interesting. Um, and uh, they they called the Currents uh for for that reason. So okay. yeah, interesting that there might be multiple products there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, we're about halfway through. Do we want to? Oh, let me do a quick Mastodon one. Um, so uh, I'm using Mastodon. Every day, um, I'm I'm cross posting still. I haven't I haven't given up Twitter. I probably should, um, but you know I'm I'm cross posting. So Mastodon though is is the federated alternative. And now, it, are you a member of Blue Sky? Have you joined Blue Sky or Beta? I am still on the waiting list. Okay, so Blue Sky was uh, an inve- I mean who Jack Dorsey I guess founder of Twitters and creating it as like a redesigned Twitter. Anyway, there's some different influencers and celebrities and people joining it, but Mastodon is federated like email and um, it has a commitment to not, you know, becoming centralized and being bought out by tech billionaires and whatever. But the signup process can be a little confusing because you have to find a server to join. Jason and I both happen to be on Mastodon.cloud, which incidentally, I would like to know a little more about the owners of that because when I've tried to get some information it hasn't been super transparent they finally updated their server version and we can now edit our our toots as mastodon posts are called which i don't i mean that happened a, a couple months ago but this article from ars technica which was yesterday on may the 2nd was headlined mastodon fixes confusing signup process to attract users fleeing twitter and basically they're allowing you to directly sign up on a central server that the mastodon you know foundation maintains and then you can switch off later uh, to something else. So it's interesting. And I think things continue to scale okay for Mastodon. I haven't read about outages. I haven't experienced them. Um, I really, really do think that we are better served as a society by being off of Twitter specifically and just the the idea of, of just centrally managed platforms. I don't know. I'm continuing to use Facebook. I love connecting to family on Facebook. But we talked a couple weeks ago about National Public Radio, NPR. They made the decision with all this hoopla over being labeled state-sponsored media like Russia Today, and then they've changed that up. And the latest, I don't know if we have this article, is Musk threatened that he's going to give away the NPR you know, Twitter ID to somebody else because he's mad that, you know, 
NPR has decided as a whole company and all their channels to stop posting to Twitter because of the ridiculousness of Musk. So any thoughts there on Mastodon and that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm having a harder time with Mastodon uh, just because the apps aren't super great and the Twitter app is better. And also there's not a critical mass on Mastodon. It may get to there. Did you say you were on Blue Sky, Dr. Fryer? I have not. I haven't said it for the beta either, but I would recommend the the toot app there's a yep, couple that's, apps that's that what i'm tried. using um yeah. and so but you don't have the reach you, you don't have I, the reach I, for sure i mean yeah and you know and and you know and i think as as you 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 were kind enough to comment back before i, I have a clever response but there was someone that was a pretty pushy about you sharing information about um the the symposium i'm i'm, I'm hosting in um uh, uh, July. And again, I, I don't disagree with the person per se. I'm just not sure if that's really the, the way to get, get change there. But <laughs> the, uh, but I, I, you know, I don't check it every day, but I wanted to point out one more ridiculous thing that's happened with, with Twitter lately. And we, we haven't gone this down this rabbit hole. Cause to be honest, this would turn into 20 minutes a week too. And I just think there's more consequential things in this world than talking about the, the demise of Twitter. But, um, if you haven't noticed this, Dr. Fryer, um, so you can pay $8 a month you know, and become a, a verified person. And it's kind of interesting. I saw a reference to this a couple of weeks ago that it's suddenly now verified has not been people you trust. It tends to be people, people that are verified tend to be people that are looking to troll you uh, as opposed to uh, lead to conversation. That's a bad sign, Mr. Musk, uh, about the direction of your platform. But um, I've been part of a couple of conversations with nonprofit organizations that I work with and help provide social media support for about the merits of getting the blue check. And um, there was one conversation I was in a couple of weeks back where we were probably going to go for it. Right. Like uh, it's it's turned into kind of a badge of discourage, I guess, for lack of a, a better way of putting it. Right. But um, the uh, uh, we decided to go ahead. And then a couple of weeks back. Uh, Elon announced and we got a notification in one of these accounts that if you're an organization, nonprofit organization, company, business, and you want to get verified, the cost is $1,000 a month. And it that's insane, right? To First of all, to not create a cost inferential for nonprofit organizations, but more importantly, it just so diminishes the power of Twitter, especially, uh, I'm sorry, it inflates the power of Twitter, especially if you're a new Twitter user, or more importantly, you have a really niche audience. And there are reasons that a nonprofit organization might want to go ahead and get verified, including at some point, they're going to reserve the for you column, which kind of mimics a TikTok feature to people who have the check mark. And it's just ridiculous uh uh that that's the direction that that organization is going into and i get that mr musk is trying to create a profitable business where 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 it wasn't one after he took over but the bottom line is is that there's just a number of blinking red lights here and one of them is that he wants to charge twelve thousand dollars a year for access for even nonprofit organizations it is. It is. I'm going to go back a little bit in the chat uh, just to to uh, give voice and amplify <clears throat> Betsy Springer's comment. She loves her Chromebook Plus. She took it to a conference recently and where she presented. I took our personal Chromebook. It was an older Dell 11 from just years ago, uh, four years ago when I went to Egypt. And I was yeah. paranoid about customs and... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's the whole privacy thing. What are you scared of? You have any, I didn't have any, anything illegal, but <clears throat> anyway, with stories about your data being, you know, sucked off your devices and all this, I, I took an Android phone. I took a Chromebook. It was being very safe, but it was wonderful. Um, I had my, you know, v, my HDMI to VGA adapter, uh, which I needed. Um, but anyway, it is fantastic. And the, the, the robust maturity of the web today in terms of being able to, as long as you've got internet connectivity, you know, take care of your presentations, your videos, all that kind of stuff. I found that uh, I was a keynoter at the conference. And so it was, it was great. And the Chromebook um, performed really well. All right. Well, so <clears throat> shall we get into some AI articles? There's only a few to choose from. Yeah, well, and let me start off with a couple practical ones. And then um, first and foremost, um, I'm a Grammarly Pro user. Um, I have been using Grammarly for seven, eight years now. It was critical for my dissertation. It was critical for my professional writing. It's wow. really a, a, an amazing tool. And so much so that I pay, I think it's like 120 bucks a year, and which makes sense um, in, in my my um, my current role in the world. But they released something recently. And by the way, they use, or they have used AI as a writing assistant, right? It, it's, it's much different than the generative AI of today, at least it was, um, but it's an AI-based tool. And so, um, uh, you know, I part of my joke tonight about being partly AI-generated is a lot of my writing is partly AI-generated. It corrects my tone. Um, it has a, a wonderful feature where it will tell you if your email is too serious or friendly or just right, or it's a lot of really? there. Yeah. Wow. It, it helps you with the and tone of your email. And integrated into Gmail? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, or any place where you can type on the internet, right? So I'm writing social media posts. I'm writing Gmails. I'm in Google Docs. Well, Grammarly has rolled out a new set of, of tools that it's calling Grammarly Go. Um, this is from uh, 9 to 5 Google on April 27th. And this is a tool that is basically a chat GPT-like sense that uh, our tool set that uh, allows you to um, modify, in addition to helping correct your grammar and making suggestions, help modify, identify gaps, give you suggestions for improvement, pick out your main point. Also, uh, you can choose the different types of tone you might want to have in it. And you don't get unlimited access to this. You only get access to, well, unpaid users actually get access to 100 prompts a month. That's pretty great for unpaid users. I have a premium account, um, so I get 500 prompts a month. But it, I've had it installed officially for the last 48 hours, and um, I've already used it to improve an email. Um, I sent out an informative email to a colleague uh, uh, yesterday, and there's a button on there that basically says, um, uh, you know, tell me what the main point is and give me ideas for improvement. And I took two of those ideas uh, from the email. You can also press buttons that say shorten it or simplify it or identify gaps, uh, pick out my main point. And, and this is not just emails, right? This is any writing that you're doing. And um, it can even, uh, if you uh, would like, um, give you points of which you can um, start with a with almost like a template, but, uh, you know, I want to write a cover letter and, and, and a, a, a Grammarly Go will provide you a, a template and guidance for doing that. 
And, you know, I, again, I, most of my communications in writing, that's, I, I email a lot. I talk on the phone relatively little. I probably only have maybe three or four calls a day, plus usually uh, three to four Zoom meetings or Zoom calls during the day. Most of my communications via writing. And when writing matters, and by the way, we throw away too many emails in this world. That's one of the reasons why email is such a terrible communication is because we don't spend time crafting them. I think this tool could legitimately make a really incredible difference for people that, um, I, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, um, uh, you know, aren't great at writing emails or need assistance to make it smoother or better. Wow. That is, that is really amazing. Uh, I'll do some geeks of the week, um, you know, kind of related to that, but ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the age of the augmented brain, right? Yeah, because totally. this is, you know, you can be bionic by allowing, you know, using these tools. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, huh. Do you know about the Joe Rogan, Steve Jobs podcast? Uh, no, although that sounds hilarious already. Well, there's a whole lot of issues around this. Um, so this is this is a Gizmodo article from October of last year. So I, it struck me today as I was thinking about getting on our show, Jason, that like one of my favorite um, sort of curriculum and I don't know, I guess it's a curriculum book is Edie Hirsch's cultural literacy. And while he took that in a, in a direction, I don't really, you know, completely agree with at all in terms of like a traditional canon of, I, I would say not very diverse texts and, and subjects for the curriculum. Um, there's a lot of good project-based stuff that he did. The idea of cultural literacy is if we're going to have an intelligent conversation about a topic, it's very, very important and maybe even just mandatory that we have similar background knowledge. So if we're going to talk about genocide in Rwanda, let's make sure we know about, you know, Nazi Germany and World War II, et cetera. Um, it occurs to me that and this is happening so quickly that there are some different sort of milestone big events that are happening, sort of like with um, the uh, Kevin Ruse and uh, Sydney incident with AI where, you know, Sydney ended up telling him, you know, that he loved that Sydney loved him and trying to get him to, away from his wife. And that caused Microsoft to make all these changes in Sydney. But that's a that's a big event that's good for people to know about. Well, there's something and, and I will reference the the podcast. I'll have to I'll have to do that. I'll have to put it into the show notes later. Um it's actually, it's one of the podcasts that you had referenced maybe in uh, a couple of shows ago um, when we did podcast recommendations. Let me see if I can go back to get it. Because I just, if you're subscribed to our um, our Substack, uh, we've been, been publishing a bunch, Cortex. You referenced a Cortex podcast that um, I've been listening to. And so uh, it was, it was when... AI art will make marionettes of us all before it destroys the world. Uh, October 19th, 2023. Okay. Relay FM. I am going to, I'll drop this into the chat. I have almost finished this and it's fantastic. There, there, I had not heard of this phrase that, you know, the, the marionette effect, but like James Earl Jones is at the good side of this because he, as the voice of Darth Vader in star Wars signed, you know, he's over 80. He signed up, signed permission. Hey, you can use my voice. I'm tired of voicing over Darth Vader, you know, use my voice and, and I'll take the, the royalties, you know, go for it. This Gizmodo article that I dropped in from October of 2022, this was a company that it called that was this podcast.ai. 
I think they took it down because I went to their podcast and I don't see it now. They have the newest one as Oprah, but they will take words that people never spoke before and make them say whatever they want. Hence this term marionette. And so one of the interesting things about this particular podcast, which again, I couldn't find and it may be offline. There are literally thousands of hours, I think, of Joe Rogan. And so his voice is so good because the training data set was so big. Steve Jobs, you know, comparably doesn't have as many recordings of his voice online. And so his voice is not as good. But I think this is a very, very important ethical issue. That Cortex podcast that I put on is a fantastic discussion of this and you know, some of the other things that I've listened to recently, just in terms of um, when we're dealing with an intelligence that is vastly better than us. Um, there was a podcast. Um, oh, there's a there's a computer science. I have to look in my YouTube, um, my, my YouTube history to, to be able to find it. Sorry, and I'm going to be playing music as I do this. Um, and it was it's comparing speed to like looking at trees and how slowly trees grow, you know, compared to us as, as human beings. Um, let me see if I can find this, but, um, anyway, I'm not going to be able to pull it up really quick, but I just, I think this idea is very, it, it's fraught with a lot of ethical challenges and, you know, as we are, are sitting here, Jason, recording our voice, putting this out on YouTube and, and face and, uh, you know, Facebook and all this, sadly, I think that if people want to, they would be able to ingest the podcast feed and probably make you or I say anything that they want to. That's and exactly the point I was going to make, Wes, is that yeah. we literally have hundreds of hours of our voice and you are, are are a step more hardcore than I am because you have other podcasts that you do. You have one with your wife, you have your old speed of creativity podcast, um, which I think there's like 500 episodes of. I'm pretty sure that there's at, you know easily a thousand hours of your voice on the internet, and I'd be probably close to um, uh, 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 three or four hundred hours now. That's probably enough to do a pretty good uh, a replication of our voices, right? And this goes back to, and we've talked about this in three or four contexts since the generated AI thing has come up. Seeing is no longer believing hearing is no longer believing and i don't know how we fix this and i don't know how we add authenticity uh to 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 uh, items as such but that's the kind of questions we need to be asking right now and you know in the same way that i am not going to or that i don't share an ai generated image without noting it's an ai generate generated image um, and, and that's a little thing. And maybe at some point we'll come up with better ways to, to talk about that. But the bottom line is, is that this is going to change. This this takes media literacy and, and, and puts it on its ear because it's so much more, you know, uh, multidimensional now than it ever has been. I, I, I believe if you are listening to our voices today, and these are our real voices, by the way, <laughs> let us assure you we're real. Um. We have just got to make media literacy a cornerstone of what we're doing in school. Yes. We do not know what is going to happen with AI for sure, but I think that we can say with a high level of confidence, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, pollution of the information landscape is going to explode and it already has exploded. Uh, yep. Betsy Springer is, is doing a shout out to the AI dilemma. This is by the center for humane technology, the same group that brought us the social dilemma. I have not watched that. I need to watch that. Jason, perhaps you and I can 
can watch that, uh, you know, separately in the next couple of weeks and, and have a little conversation about it. I think that we need to consider um, how we're going to meaningfully respond to artificial intelligence in the curriculum. Um, let me, we got like six more minutes till the top of the hour to the, the hour. There's one more AI article I want to do um, that fits into this category of this is like an app. This is an event that we all need to know about. Uh, this is the New York times on April 19th. Uh, I am not a, a big rap music fan. Uh, and Drake is, you know, a, a, is a big rapper. And so this incident, which I don't think we've covered on the show previously. Um, the headline is an AI hit fake Drake and the weekend rattles the music world. And you can find this article, you know, several different places. Um, New York times has the, they're, they're super long. And so I'll try to, I'll we have a gift link for this, but I'll get a, a shortened version of it. Uh, the bottom line is folks that are Drake fans can't tell that this isn't Drake and the, the, the really popular and, and wealthy, musicians uh, like Drake, like The Weeknd, their music companies are going to be able to take these kind of things down. But the article and then other commentators make the point that, um, you know, a lot of folks may not be able to do that. And whether we like it or not, this is being done. This is going to be done. And there could be some positive to this. I, I actually, I think I listened to this article and, or maybe, yeah. Uh, it's about 11 minutes. And, you know, maybe this is going to herald uh, some new types of creativity. I mean, can you imagine different musical artists, you know, being able to to take different voices and put them together in the ways that they could imagine? But like control intellectual property, copyright is fascinating because, you know, Napster was a, it was able to be shut down by the government because we had laws prohibiting illegal copies that were owned by the creators or by the, the, the music companies. In this case, you know, Drake and the weekend didn't create this musical track called heart on my sleeve. And so when it went viral, like they were eventually able to get it taken down, but you know, are we going to need new laws to deal with? I think this is a, is a, if it's an important incident to talk about, and I was thinking, Jason, Hey, you need to write a book about AI and wouldn't it be great to say like the cultural literacy of AI, but it's changing so fast. It, it would be challenging to, yeah. to do because you'd have to you'd have to be updating it almost monthly. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to go past the top of the hour. Um, uh, by the way, excellent, excellent tip uh, from Betsy in chat tonight. Uh, the families should have a code word to protect from spoof calls for uh, help using your own voice. And I'm going to do exactly that with my parents as soon as we're done tonight, Betsy. A excellent uh, idea. And I will talk to both my parents about that. Um, and not my parents are both uh, in their 70s. Uh, they're pretty savvy. My mom was was one of the first people to have a computer um, and, and she was a bookkeeper for for 50 years before she retired. And so, um, uh, 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 you know, it's not like she's she's completely um, uh, uh, susceptible to that. But I think that's a really important point that, you know, you want to talk about media literacy while this starts at home. And this links to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, where those kinds of spoofed calls, where you're getting a phone call from someone claiming to be your mother or your father, and they really sound like them. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. In order to make sure it really is them. And this is this is the authentication, right? We're not going to be able to do a, a retinal scan or a thumbprint scan or something like that. Isn't that just, isn't that just crazy? Wow. Yep. <laughs> 
Yep. In fact, I just wrote a note to myself that I, I'm going to do that for my my staff at work, too, because I again and it probably doesn't impact everyone. But for Dr. Fryer and myself, with literally hundreds of hours of training data on YouTube. The other thing I would say is we can treat this like the bank, right? You get a phone call from the bank. Yes. Hey, you've or, or Amazon. Hey, you just have a three hundred dollar package delivered to blah, blah, blah. This has happened to me, by the way. Uh, the best thing to do is to hang up. And then call your bank. <laughs> you know, if you get this kind of a phone call from your parent, you know, you're not going to want to. I mean, maybe it is best to have that code word and then they can verify themselves right away. It's it, in an emergency. It's it's unfortunate to think about having to verify it. But before you do something rash and especially, you know, transfer a large amount of money or drive at a high rate of speed across town or something like that, I think it's going to be worthwhile to verify. Yep. Absolutely. Crazy crazy well um just a couple other quick ones here um the first one is um this is from a source that i did click into the study that and this is the uh, fourth or fifth one down west uh this one's gpg ai enables scientists to passively decode thoughts in a groundbreaking study this is our, our artisna um for i don't know how to pronounce it um which reports itself to be a generative AI news source. Um, I wouldn't have quoted this if I hadn't clicked through onto the study um, uh, that that um, uh, that talks about this. I'm going to read the study in a little more detail, but it cites um, uh, uh, the journal Nature Neuroscience and um, uh, a, a group of folks from the University of Texas at Austin created an experiment where um, uh, basically what happened was that they had, I believe, uh, the participants uh, either viewing media or speaking to them, and they were taking notes about what they were thinking about, while at the same time, they were using passive means of recording brain activity. And they used generative AI, and at an 81% success rate, they were able to determine what the person was thinking about um, in real time. And that's that's insane um, to start off with. Um, and I mean, that effectively, uh, uh, folks, is a mind reader uh, is what that is. And um, I, I, that gets awfully dystopian, awfully quick for me. Um, but I had never I mean, it makes sense when you think about it that, of course, they did. You know, they're working on something like this. But sweet mother of Troy. Okay, and here's a weird one, Jason. This is freaky. Um, in the in episode 290, uh, I went ahead and titled the episode Generative Art AI, I think. Is that what I did? And so I thought, well, you know, generative AI art. We need to have some. So I uh, have, on Sunday, started to play with some apps on my iPhone. The one I found that I liked the best was called AI Arta. Uh, it has the watermark AIBY. Maybe that's saying that it was generated by AI. Uh, I don't know. But here was the prompt I put in. This was for the show art for episode 290. I didn't put our names. I said, two middle-aged men podcasting over Zoom, one in Montana, one in North Carolina, with virtual backgrounds looking happy and wise. And if you click that link, Jason... Even, you didn't even use their actual photos? No. I did oh, not put our yes. names in. I just said that. So we may be... The only people podcasting from North Carolina and um, and and Montana. I don't know who these characters are down below. This was like the Van Gogh style, so that's why there's you know swirls like Starry Night in the background. 
But seriously, that is wild. So the AI somehow interpreted that prompt, which had no reference to you or I, and it visually, like that's a that's a decent you and an okay me. I think yep. it's a better you than me. But like, what's up with that? Yeah, that's that's so intense. And um, yeah, again, you know, I I know I. I, do we have, I mean, other than our, our, our live viewers every week and I have four or five friends that listen pretty regularly. I don't know how many regular listeners we have. This is more of a, an exercise of processing, uh, at least, at least for me each week. But, um, the, I, I know people get tired and well, and I, I can tell you my staff gets tired of me, uh, uh, rambling on uh, about AI, uh, as, as, as part of my work with the Montana digital Academy team. So, but the, the really bottom line is that, um, I, yeah, if you don't think this changes everything, or I have seen a lot of of, of cruff lately about you know this is particularly it relates to education that um, you know that that this technology isn't very good or it's being overhyped. And those two things we just told you, those are pretty darn intense. A side note, sidebar on the Artisana website, artisana.ai. One of the most important media literacy skills, which I emphasize with my kids, and I need to keep a football in my room because we demonstrate lateral reading. We talk, or, or like a football lateral, pardon me, is lateral reading. Lateral reading is when you don't just stay on that website, but you go to a different site and you see what other sites say about that. I was just trying to laterally read this and I really couldn't find anything. There's not a Wikipedia article about it. I don't, I wonder how new it is. So like, if I was going to go further with this, I would go into a who is search. When was the domain registered and, and try to dig in and, and you can vertically read too, like read the about page and what they say about themselves. But that is an essential media literacy skill. And I'm trying to do that more myself. And anyway, I was just trying to do it about that website and, and I was having some difficulty. So um, anyway, um, I wonder, I'm going to, I'm going to do the Google thing. I think we, we mentioned last time there's the trick where you, when you Google a search, there's three dots. Okay. So I'm doing it. I've, I've, I've Googled the headline on the article. There's three dots next to it. I'm clicking on the three dots. Oh, I didn't do it. Huh? Interesting. There's a Reddit post about it. So anyway, we digress and we have gone, <laughs> we've yeah. gone long. Well, I, I feel like we should we should somehow cover more because goodness gracious, the yeah yeah this well let me let me share with you one other um, uh, revelation Please. I made the other day. Uh, this is the sing- second link from the top, Wes. Um, I would like to introduce everyone to Mister Randier, which is a script basically that you can enter in a ChatGPT four. It has to be version four that essentially sets up a an AI tutor. And I've been playing with it the last two days, and it's nothing short of holy dog amazing, right? But essentially what you do is you take this long set of commands and type them in the chat GPT-4, and it essentially creates a tutor that you can adjust how it works with you. So as an example of the configuration options, the depth ranges from one, which is surface level understanding to 10 cutting edge research. You choose a learning style, which is a term I hate because learning styles uh, uh, do not exist, but um, sensing, visual, inductive, active, sequential, uh, intuitive, verbal, deductive, reflective, or global. And it has definitions for each. 
I'd also ask you how you want it to communicate with you. And you could say uh, stoic, formal, textbook, layman, storytelling, Socratic, or humorous. The tone, debate, encouraging, neutral, informative, friendly. The reasoning frameworks, inductive, inductive, abductive, analogical, or casual. And then um, whether or not you want to, I don't know what update rate means, but you type the script in and then it asks you your preferences. And then you could say something like, teach me about World War II. And then it will start interacting back and forth with you. And whenever you're ready for it, it will give you uh, an assessment to find out how you're doing on it. That's incredible, right? And that notion of, of using a tool like this to, you know, for you to do self-directed learning in, in a way a teacher might do it, right? And again, I, you know, I'm not in the, the um, AI will replace teachers camp because I just think there's too much human about what happens in the learning process. But I also pretty strongly believe that, um, um, that this is going to have to be a part of, of, especially for personalizing or individualizing learning, this is going to have to be part of our strategy. Are you a Star Trek fan? Uh, I am, as a matter of fact. Okay, so this is one of the more recent Star Trek movies where they showed uh, sort of a holodeck, but like, I think it was when the... Um, uh, Oh gosh, Leonard Nimoy and Spock, what's there? The Vulcans were yeah. training, like sort of going into almost an IMAX, sort of mini IMAX theater. So it was this wraparound screen and they were going in there for, um, you know, education. Um, what was it? Was it First Contact? I think, yeah, I think it was Jonathan Frake. I don't know. No, it wasn't. Anyway, um, it was, it was a, it was a, as, as many science fiction movies do and Star Trek does, it portends the future. And so when you think about a tool like Mr. Reindeer that is a customized um, tutor, uh, think about that completely mm -hmm. hooked to video. Yeah. I think I mentioned in the show last time, one of the things I want is something that's going to take the main ideas that I'm talking about as a teacher and it's just going to visually present images as I'm talking about those things, I'm going to talk yep. about Leonard Nimoy. I'm going to talk about, um, you know, uh, whatever, whatever the topic is that's coming. But I think that we also are going to be having, you know, certainly games that are not going to be completely programmed, but they're going to be AI generated. And we're also going to, you know, this, I don't know how fast this is going to come, but we're going to be able to have these kinds of immersive personal tutors that are not going to be generic, but they're going to be, you know, customized and specialized to us and to the things that we know, the things that we understand. Right. And for, for the record, I mean, it, that sounds far-fetched, except that right now you can go to Twitch and go to the channel called Nothing Forever, and there is AI-generated Seinfeld episodes going on 24-7 uh, that are being generated in real time. Now, to be clear, it was taken off for a while because of some, um, uh, I believe it was racist comments that that uh, uh, one of the episodes made, um, if I remember correctly. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, they will work through that in the same way that they'll work through it in a way to give a magical background PowerPoint presentation in a large immersive area when Dr. Fryer is teaching uh, about something in his classroom and that sounds a little futuristic 
Um, but it's not at all. And I do think the generative AI has made an awful lot of science fiction-y things suddenly not so fiction anymore. On the positive side, I did a very simple thing today in class. We're doing our Google sites and our digital portfolios. We were look, taking a look at and, and kind of proofreading. A student had written a paragraph, three sentences, had some you know spelling grammatical errors, copied it, put it into chat GPT, said, please yeah. correct this for you know, spelling, grammatical errors, or please correct for spelling, grammar, um, et cetera. And not only did it, of course, fix it right way, it did a line by line, this is what I fixed immediately. So when you think about being able to have that kind of a tool, and I won't go into it now because I think I'm going to hopefully do it, but, but scripting and coding, um, it's just play with this. If you're not playing with this, you need to spend some time playing with it. I appreciate your encouragement, Jason, to say, hey, you're using this every day. And it's like, well, I'm not using it at all. And so just the little bit that I've been doing, you know, it it, it drives home the, the not only the power of it and of, ooh, it's powerful, but the very basic utility. And I'll talk about that in the Geeks of the Week in terms of, of YouTube summarization. So should we should we go there? Um. You can do one more. I mean, let's. Nothing is no, stopping us from going further. I think so. we need to. I think we need to call this good. We need to and, wrap it and, up. You know, I don't know. One of the things we may want to think about, Doctor Fryer, is that we may we 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 may want to pivot this um, to an AI and education show. Uh, in part because I think a year from now it's going to be hard not to talk about this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doctor Fryer, what, what's your geek of the week, buddy? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, sorry, I have several. Uh, Canny. <laughs> All right. Um, I am, I am, uh, you know, missing a bunch of Google tools. Google used to have, wasn't it called Google Moderator, where you could put up a post and people could upvote, downvote. Um, just learned about this one again from a podcast. It's called Canny. Um, here's the example. So there's a podcasting platform. Actually, it's the one that did the Steve Jobs, uh, Rogan, um, you know, fake podcast. But they're soliciting ideas for their podcast for podcast AI using this tool, uh, canny.io. And so it's just kind of cool. People can suggest ideas, they can upvote, they can downvote. Um, I, I think these kinds of tools, which are allowing for crowdsourcing, um, that could be a cool thing to use in your classroom. Um, and so anyway, I don't know if they may, they may charge and there may not be a free tier. Here's the part about summarizing our, our uh, podcast. So I had been using earlier versions of ChatGPT. I could dump the entire transcript of one of our usually hour-long episodes and get a quick summary, and then I could edit it. They changed it. You, you have to break things into smaller chunks. What are you going to do? I've discovered summarize.tech. Have you used this yet, Jason? I've not. Okay, so put any video in, summarize.tech, um, and, and it will do by five minute increments, it will summarize each five minute increment, give you a summary of the entire hour. And when you go over the hour, you get two different segments. So for tonight I put, well, for the, for, for episode 290, which I did today, uh, put that in there, copied the two paragraphs for hour one and like our 10 minutes that were over the hour, put that into chat GPT four said, please combine and write this more concisely. Boom. Excellent summary. Um, didn't have to do anything in terms of like separating text and, and getting super complicated. Um, on voice, play.ht, AI-powered text generator. Now, I, I have several books that I want to write, but it is possible to think about maybe training an AI to be able to use my voice and then 
releasing a, an audio version of a book uh, with that, this tool, play.ai, can be possibly used for that. And then lastly, Monday night, I had a great chance uh, with Tip Teachers, which is up from your neck of the woods, Jason, in the Pacific Northwest, a fantastic presentation by Rachel Moran Prestridge, who is a postdoc for the University of Washington in their um, uh, Center for an uh, formed public. And she gave one of the best presentations I've ever seen on TikTok. This is my thread um, of, uh, uh, you know, takeaways from her presentation. She doesn't have the PowerPoint posted online publicly. Um, I would be happy to send that to somebody if you, we don't have a ton of people that are probably going to ask for that. But I'm going to be doing a, uh, a unit on using the SIFT web literacy framework with TikTok because she has some great examples talking about health, talking about the ways in which, um, you know, different challenges are on TikTok. These are things we need to be talking with kids about, not because I want to promote the use of TikTok among middle schoolers. I've got a lot of middle schoolers that are on TikTok. Um, and this was just a fantastic presentation. And those are just a few takeaways from her presentation. So ends tonight's Geek of the Week overshare from Wes. <laughs> wow. And uh, mine seems just kind of sad in comparison to that. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my wife and I are headed to um, Sweden and Germany this summer. One of our favorite uh, resources for travel is the travel writer Rick Steves. He's a Seattle-based writer. And in fact, if I hadn't read uh, his book, Europe Through the Back Door, in uh, 1999, I, I would not be the traveler I am today. But he's got a really great app that, that has uh, free audio tours of of things in a lot of different cities and uh, great walking tours. And we've been uh, spending our time um, uh, kind of looking at, at different options. Um, but he has a wonderful Berlin uh, city uh, or, or uh, city tour that we're going to utilize. And and you just put it, you know, on your, your, your smartphone and put your earpiece in and then he'll just guide you around everywhere you want to go. Fantastic. Whew, hey, this is going to be a record. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's all right. All right, westfriar.com slash after is me. How about you? Uh, still uh, kind of Twittering it up, Tech Savvy Beach. <laughs> there we go. All right, well, we want to thank everybody for coming. We had some great live viewers tonight. Peggy George, Betsy Springer, thank you all for joining us. Um, we also had Elizabeth with us. Um, and so anyway, it's just great to have... Uh, multiple folks that are live in the chat room uh, contributing to our conversations and asking questions. Uh, let's see, it was Elizabeth Springer. So if you would like to check us out, you can always find us at edtechsr.com. You can find our YouTube channel. Who knows? Maybe we'll be changing the name of our podcast. But for now, we are the EdTech Situation Room, a Wednesday night podcast that comes to you at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, 6 p.m. Pacific, and sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. You can download the small 32 kilobit MP3 audio versions from our website, as well as smaller compressed video versions. But wherever you want to get our podcast, we would welcome any feedback that you might have. You can reach out to Jason or I, and we'd love to have you live on the show. Until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and start playing with ChatGPT if you're not already. Good night.